We have Joel with us. Uh, pastor Joel is, uh, is, is the pastor, elder at Garden Church in Baltimore. Uh, Y'all are probably familiar with it. We've, uh, the last two years, gone up to Baltimore and spent some time uh, with Joel, his family, uh, the church there, and I think uh, enjoyed it, enjoyed our time. Uh, Joel's a, a faithful brother that uh, leading a church to do a hard thing, I, I think, in Baltimore. And I feel like there's a thin line to walk uh, in, in some of these contexts between uh, uh, being light on the gospel, which is actually no gospel, uh, not, not a gospel, or, uh, um, or, or, or not doing ministry well, or not ministering to people and meeting needs, uh, but then connecting those needs to the gospel. And I feel like it's a thin line, and I think Garden Church does a great job at being a faithful church, preaching the gospel, and calling uh, people to repentance, meeting them where they're at, uh, but not just giving handouts, uh, but, but connecting them with the, with the one that can truly provide uh, liberation, freedom. Um, and so I'm excited that he's here. Um, I think more uh, than just him coming to preach, we uh, as a church have enjoyed going to, to Baltimore the last two years and doing the back-to-school bash, but I think there's more, more, of, a, more of a work to be done. Uh, so by God's grace, it, it looks like there are three planters that are going out from Garden Church that are going to plant three churches in, in Baltimore. And, uh, and if there are churches that are like the Garden Church that are faithfully preaching the word and meeting people, uh, and that, that, that would be a good thing. And so I think there's an opportunity for us as a church to, to do more than, uh, and praise the Lord that we have been able to go up do the back to school bash and help with that. But I think there's more for us to do. Uh, wrap our arms around what's going on there, the, the city of Baltimore, and, and love and love people well, uh, and probably learn uh, ourselves how to love people around us that, that may, uh, may also be struggling. So um, we're excited for him to be here, and uh, and I hope that maybe it leads to, to, to greater things. So Joel, come preach, brother. Well, it's good to be with you guys today. Thanks for having me, Pastor Jason. Appreciate it, brother, and thanks for the singing, the time of worship already we've had today. Uh, you guys have been a sweet partner of ours. Uh, I've gotten to know some of you and, and uh, have just been so blessed. We've been so blessed in Baltimore by your partnership already, and so just thank you for partnering with us. And our church is called the Garden Church. We've got a ministry called One Hope. That's the platform that we're using to really just try to plant churches among the poor in Baltimore City. And uh, so be praying for us. Um, I had materials to give to you, and I left them in my bag at your house, David, so I'll give them to you, and you can pass them out later. But uh, onehope.gives is uh, our website for the church planting ministry, and you can sign up there for the uh, prayer request email that goes out pretty regularly, and I would invite you to do that and ask for your prayers for us as we seek to plant churches in the inner city of Baltimore. So anyway, uh, let's jump into Luke chapter 5. If you would turn there, uh, I want to speak to you from three different stories that are strung together here in Luke chapter 5 this morning, verses 12 through 32, Luke 5, 12 through 32. And when you're there, say amen. amen. All right. Quicker on the draw than my church is. I usually have to ask that question three or four times, and then I've got to tell somebody, like, hey, get off your phone and get into the Bible. You'll, you'll, you'll be less bored that way. Um, Luke 5, 12 through 
32. Let me read this, and then we are going to study this passage together. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell him no one, but to go and show yourself to the priest and make yourself an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee, and Judea, and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven, forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you say your sins, I'm sorry, why do you question in your hearts, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with joy or filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I want to preach to you this morning on these verses, and I'm going to title my sermon, Jesus Goes to the Lowly. Let's pray together and ask God for his help as we dive in. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this opportunity for us to gather in your word. I pray that you would help me as I speak, that I would communicate your truths, your ideas with clarity, not my own truths, not my own ideas, but your word. Father, I pray that you would open the hearts of the listener, open my own heart, that you would shape us and fashion us according to your likeness and your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. After his father passed, Carday couch surfed, jumping from one house to another. He lived with his aunt for a season until she was evicted from her own house, and then Carday finally ended up on the streets. 
The best living situation he had for this season was a warehouse. And he would, uh, I would often pick him up at the warehouse uh, in the morning for church. And he would talk about how he's sleeping on the chair instead of uh, on the concrete floor. Um, I would have moved Carday into my house, but during this time, Carday also began using drugs. And it was not a good situation. He started smoking marijuana pretty heavily, and then he moved into psychedelics and, and other harder drugs. It wasn't long before the warehouse kind of kicked him out as well, and he was sleeping on the streets. Now, by God's grace, Carday hit rock bottom and came to Christ, came back to the gathering of people. He had, he had attended our church for a number of years before this. We saw a significant change in his life. He got clean. He then moved in with some church members, uh, slept in their basement, slept in, uh, started running a room from another family in our church. Finally, he got his own place. And then what struck me as I watched Carday grow was this. Carday is the only person I know who had a warm bed to sleep in and a house to sleep in, and he would choose to sleep outside for the sake of sharing the gospel with homeless people. He would literally be in a gospel conversation with some homeless friend of his, and he would sleep on the, the grate on the side of the street where the steam is coming up just because he didn't want to stop his gospel conversations. Now, I don't know if that's the wisest missiological strategy. All I'm saying is this. When you experience homelessness, you have a heart for the homeless. When you experience brokenness, you have a heart for the broken. And I wonder if anyone here can say amen to the fact. Yes. That you know what it's like to be broken. That you can say, spiritually speaking, when you have experienced the fact, when you realize the fact that you are spiritually broken, sick, you are spiritually an outcast, that you have a greater heart for the spiritually sick, broke, and outcast. Amen? Where's my amen corner? Yes, there it is. Now, I know that you don't want to show favoritism in your mission and in your outreach any more than I do. But the challenge that we have is that we often forget that we were once the estranged. We often forget that we were once the outcast. There's a hymn that we sing on Sundays at our church often, and it goes, if it had not been for the Lord, where would I be? I want to ask you this question. Have you forgot God's grace in your own life? Have you forgot the fact that you were once the spiritually broken? If we forget this, if I forget this, it's too easy for us to just kind of fall into a Christian bubble and then to disregard the hurting and to disdain the sinner and to diminish the heart for the broken and the lost and to discount the neglected that are around us. Now, I, I read to you three different stories from Luke chapter 5 
Before I get into these, I want to point out verses 1 through 11 of Luke chapter 5 is the calling of Jesus' first disciples. Jesus makes regular folk like you and me disciples, and he calls them fishers of men. Now, what Luke is doing for us here is as soon as he calls his first disciples, Luke shows us where Jesus is taking these disciples. And they're scary places. They're different places. He's taking them to the leper. He's taking them uh, uh, to the lame. He's taking them to Levi, the tax collector. And so what I want to do then today is this. I want to look at this theme that Jesus goes to the lowly of society. And as he goes, what does he do? He's taking, with his, disciple, he's taking his disciples with him. And the question I want to ask ourselves this morning is, Am I going with Jesus to the outcast? Scene one. I'm going to call this scene in verse 12 through verse 16. Jesus goes to the outcast as one who cleanses. In verse 12, it says, While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, saying, Lord, if you will, make me clean. Now, leprosy was a terrible disease in which your skin would end up literally raw. One commentator put it this way. They said that lepers were so repulsive that it resulted in physical, social, and psychological isolation. While a leper may have just taken a bath, a leper always gave off this impression of filth. And according to the law of Moses, a leper was ceremonially unclean. So in Leviticus chapter 13, uh, what we see is that within Israel, if anybody touches a leper, they are now unclean. And so therefore, a leper must live outside of the camp. A leper must live alone. And if anybody is approaching a leper, according to the law, the leper is to shout, unclean, unclean. Can you imagine the social, psychological isolation that this man would have felt? Imagine his loneliness. You know, saints, physical pain is one thing, but emotional pain is another. So he asks Jesus, are you willing to help me? Are you willing to heal me? Imagine his joy in verse 13, when Jesus, it says, stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately, the leprosy left him. A great reversal took place. Instead of Jesus being made unclean by the leper's uncleanness, the opposite takes place. The leper, when he's touched by Jesus, is made clean by Jesus. What a wonderful Savior we have, isn't he? And so then Jesus tells the man, tell no one. Verse 15, we discover why, which is kind of strange. Don't tell anybody about this. Well, verse 15 says, great crowds were gathering to hear him and, and uh, to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places. 
You see, Jesus did not come for a popular fan base. He didn't just simply come to be a healer, but rather Jesus came on this sacrificial mission to live the life that you and I cannot live, to die the death that you and I should have died, so that he might take the wrath of God for our sin and defeat sin and death. That's why Jesus came. And so Jesus then is focused on this mission. While he's going around and healing the leper, while he's, we're going to see he heals the lame and others, while he's doing these, these things, he doesn't want to be detracted from the mission for which he came. And so then in verse 14, Jesus says, show yourself to the priest, which is kind of interesting because he says, don't tell anybody, uh, anybody about this, but show yourself to the priest. Why? Well, it's for two reasons, I believe. Number one, Jesus was concerned about the ceremonial law. A leper was unclean, and a priest would then uh, uh, kind of reverse that ceremonial process and be able to declare the man fit to re-engage society. And so he wants the man to have reunion with his people and his family. So he says, show yourself to the priest. But there's also another reason. He says in verse 14, proof to them. This would be proof to them. What does he mean by that? Well, in John, uh, or I'm sorry, Luke 7, just two chapters over, in verse 22, John the Baptist sends a question to Jesus, and he says, hey, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, tell John this, lepers are healed. Meaning, the, the, the healing of this leper was going to be assigned to John the Baptist and to you and I. That Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Sinner, you need cleansing from your sin. We need to be cleansed from our sin. Christ is the one who cleanses. In his death on the cross, this great reversal takes place in which we receive his righteousness. And he takes our judgment. And rising from the dead three days later, he defeats sin and death, leaves our sin buried in the ground, raised to new life. And all who turn from their sins and trust in him are forgiven now of their sins, cleansed of all unrighteousness, and one day will be raised to new life with God and live forever with God apart from even the presence of sin. Turn to Christ. He is your only hope. He is your only Savior. He is the one who cleanses. And what a wonderful cleansing Savior he is. So that's scene one. Jesus goes to the outcast, the lowly, as the one who cleanses. Scene two. Jesus goes to the outcast as the one who forgives. Now this, is, this fits well because I just talked about the forgiveness that we have in Christ. That's how he cleanses us. It's through his sacrificial death, through his forgiveness. But scene two then goes a little deeper. The scenes intensify as we go, and it answers the question, how do we know that Jesus can forgive? How did anybody in his day know that when Jesus says, I forgive you, that they are truly forgiven of their sins? So as we look at this scene, here Jesus is teaching. 
And by this time, Jesus had kind of become a little bit of a celebrity. A lot of people are gathering around him to the point that as friends are bringing their paralyzed friend to Jesus to meet with Jesus to be healed, they can't even get near him. And so you probably know this story. What do they do? They climb up on the roof and they let him down. Verse 17 tells us that the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes are there. This is in part how the scenes begin to intensify. The Pharisees and the scribes are there. Jesus is about to start getting in trouble. Verse 19, his friends, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Verse 20, and when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. All right, now at this point, the scribes and the Pharisees begin to question, how can he say this? Look at verse 21. The scribes, the Pharisees begin to question, saying, who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, if I were to say to David, your sins are forgiven you, all right, based on my authority, without any gospel proclamation, I'm claiming to be able to forgive sins. Is that blasphemy? Yes. I can't forgive what has been... What, let me give you another analogy. Let's say that Melissa has offended Jason, Pastor Jason. And I go to, uh, I go to Pastor uh, Jason, or I go to Melissa, and I say, hey, um, I forgive you for what you did to Pastor Jason. Pastor Jason would come to me and say, hey, I appreciate your heart of forgiveness, but it's not your job to forgive her for what she did to me. Does that make sense? Now, I don't know the situation. If you're butting heads right now, I apologize for stepping. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> um, but my point is simply this. The one who's offended is the only one that can forgive. And so what's Jesus saying about himself? As he takes on the authority to forgive sins. So here's the thing. The Pharisees and the scribes, they are actually right in that only God can forgive sins. Amen? We can say amen to the Pharisees and the scribes where we can say amen. They are right on that. And so what is this saying about Jesus? Well, that's, that's the issue. That's the question. It's a massive claim. So verse 22, Jesus reads their minds. They don't even say this out loud. This is just another sign of Jesus' divinity. He perceives their thoughts and so Jesus engages them, and he asks them in verse 23, what's easier? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and get up? Well, that's an interesting question. Both would be miracles. Both are equally impossible. I can't forgive somebody their sins anymore then I can heal a lame man. But here's the thing. It's easier for me to say your sins are forgiven. Why? 
because I don't have to prove it. So if I say, David, your sins are forgiven, I don't have, there's no proof as to whether or not I just was, I, I was able to forgive some kind of cosmic forgiveness of sins. I can't prove that. But if I say to someone who's paralyzed, get up, that's a little harder to get away with, isn't it? Why? It's because I have to immediately prove it. They have to get up. Now, which one of these is greater? Well, my goodness, it's greater to be able to receive the forgiveness of sins from God. And so what Jesus says is this. Look at verse 24. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and he went home glorifying God, and amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. You see, Jesus first offers forgiveness, forgives the man to prove that Jesus can do the greater work of forgiveness. He does the lesser work of healing the man, giving him the strength in his legs back so that they might know that he can forgive sins. What does this tell us? First, don't minimize the forgiveness of sins. I was once interviewed by a megachurch pastor in the suburbs of Baltimore, and it was a television interview, and he asked me, what is the hope for the poor in Baltimore? And so I just told him the gospel. I said, I believe the gospel, the forgiveness of sins through Christ, is the hope for the poor in Baltimore. And he sort of had this pitiful expression on his face, almost like, oh, you, you know, you, you, naive individual, you know, and he, he had this pitiful expression as if I'm so behind the times. And he said, so you only think that, or, or so you think that the only hope for the poor in Baltimore is the forgiveness of sins. Is that all that the church can offer? Now, I, I get what he was saying, and I knew what he was saying from the get-go. He wanted me to talk about jobs. He wanted me to talk about tutoring. He wanted me to talk about how the church can address literacy. But the problem was, he asked me, what's the hope of the poor in Baltimore? I mean, what greater hope can we have? I mean, we could talk about jobs. That just wasn't the question he asked me. You know, our church helps people get jobs. Our church helps young kids find tutors. Our church addresses literacy rates among our third graders. We do a lot of those things as we seek to love the neighborhood, but a job is not a man's hope. An intact family is not actually the hope for a child. Learning how to read by third grade is not our hope. The greatest gift this paralytic received that day wasn't the use of his legs. That's what everybody would have celebrated, but that wasn't the greatest gift that he received. The greatest gift he received was the forgiveness of sins. In what way 
Has God not already done enough for you? You know, someone might hear the forgiveness of sins and say, yeah, 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 I know the gospel, I know that he's forgiven me, but what about my challenges? What about my aging body? What, am I, what about my bills? What about my legs? What about my job situation? What about my relational problems? What about my issues with my spouse? I get that he's forgiven me, but how does he help me now in the temporal? And, and look, he addresses the temporal. The Bible is very practical in every way. Yet, can I just simply ask this question? My friend with a serious illness, has God in Christ not already done enough for you? My friend who's facing death, has God not already done enough for you? My friend who's losing the, 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 the use of your legs, has God not already done enough for you? You see, we must never minimize the forgiveness of sins. Is God's forgiveness of your sins not already enough to praise Him and to glorify Him? Jesus gives us, therefore, what we need, not just always what we want. And the spiritual outcast, like you and I, we need forgiveness. Scene three. Jesus goes to the outcast, to the lowly, as the one who accepts. He goes as the one who accepts. Now, tax collectors were, were surely the outcast of the day. They were insiders in the community that sold out their brothers and sisters and family members to work for Rome. But there's this one tax collector named Levi who comes to Christ. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 tells us that, that Matthew left everything and followed him. Jesus says in verse 32 that he comes for those who repent. And so a tax collector, while certainly would have been a sinner, a greedy individual, often taking more than he uh, should have taken, someone who sold out his family members and his brothers and sisters, this is a tax collector who turned to Christ, repented of his sins, and is following him. But now at the same time, this is where Jesus really gets in trouble with the scribes and the Pharisees. So look at verse 29. Jesus made, or I'm sorry, Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. So this tax collector follows Christ, and instead of abandoning his tax collector friends, what does he do? He throws a big feast with all of his tax collector friends who are ungodly individuals and he has Jesus come over for the party. J.C. Ryle put it this way. He said, a converted man will not wish to go to heaven alone. Levi doesn't abandon his non-Christian friends. He doesn't start following Christ and then hop in, hops into this little non a uh, uh, missional pod of safe religious folks. He doesn't disconnect himself or his, uh, fr from his sinner friends, but rather he seeks to connect his sinner friends with Jesus. He invites his friends to meet Jesus. And he gets himself in trouble here. 
An example here would be maybe someone who's, who's coming out of chemical dependency, drug addiction. And they become a Christian, they come to Jesus, and they immediately invite their, their new pastor friend to come and bring the message of Jesus to their drug friends who live in the trap house, a place where drugs are being sold and used. And the pastor goes in there and he explains the gospel to people. And he walks out with the stench of death all over him. And somebody sees him and says, Pastor, did you just walk out of that drug house? This is sort of a modern day scenario as to what Jesus is doing. He's going to the places where we're not supposed to go. To take the good news of forgiveness of sins. So the Pharisees and the scribes questioned Jesus in verse 30. The Pharisees and the scribes, it says, grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, don't, don't miss this. Who did they grumble at? It says, they grumbled at his disciples. Meaning, when you follow Christ, you're hated with Christ. When you go where Jesus goes, people don't understand the love of Christ and they'll grumble at you for following Christ. So here's Jesus' response then to the grumbling. And this is in some ways my sermon. This is the point of it. Everything else was a big, long introduction, but I'll be done soon. Look at, look at verse 31. And Jesus answered them. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I've not come to call the righteous. What does he mean by that? Is he saying that these Pharisees are actually righteous? Well, no, that can't be the case because we know elsewhere that there are none who are righteous. No, not one. The word righteous here in the original language has the idea of justification attached to it or being justified. Now justified is simply a word that means lined up. So if you think of uh, you're, you're working on a word doc and you click justified on the word doc, what does it do? It lines up the edges of your document. Everything is in order. What Jesus is saying is, is these are people who are kind of lined up with the Mosaic law. They're lined up with all of the commands. They're sort of outwardly going about their self-righteousness. All right? So we could understand actually righteousness here to be more self-righteousness, meaning these guys actually think that they are righteous. They actually think that they are justified simply because they're lining themselves up with the expectations and the rules of the day. But he says, I haven't come to call those who just externally, outwardly line themselves up with all of the right rules. I've come for the person who knows that they are broken. I've come for the person who knows that they're not lined up. Their, their life is a mess. Application. As we think of our own life as a spiritual outcast saved by the grace of God, let's not play favoritism in our mission, but let's go to the lowly. 
I think in some ways we're tempted to over-spiritualize this and miss that Jesus actually went to the outcast. What I mean by that is this. It is right to say that we are the outcast, and I'm going to get back to that theme. It's right to say that we are the poor, we are the broken, and I'm going to get back to that theme. But I think, I think in some sense it's easy for me to just read this and apply that in that way and say, I am the, I am the poor, I am the outcast, and then to kind of sit on my hands and not actually go to the very kinds of people with the gospel that Jesus went to. Meaning he actually did go to the outcast of society. He actually did go to the lowly of society. And so I just want to ask this question. Who are the outcasts in our society that Jesus would have gone to? Now, I'm, I'm in Baltimore City. And in our community, there are people who are, have been affected by years of discrimination and prejudice, who have been neglected by society, who are living in broken homes, children that are hiding under the table while their mother is being kicked by an abuser with no food in the fridge, third graders that don't read. And so there are certainly people in our society and in my city that society has kind of looked past and neglected. And when I say society, sometimes I even mean parents. And often my concern is that the, 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 the best of our gospel-centered outreaches and endeavors often overlook some of the most neglected places that are considered to be too dangerous to go or too violent to go. So, for example, a recent study showed that in the Baltimore, D.C. area, if you're familiar with that area, what is that, five hours north of here? Um, in the Baltimore, D.C. area, over, uh, between 2011 and 2017, there were 220 churches planted in that area. It's a lot of churches. Out of those 220 churches planted between Baltimore and D.C., only three of those churches are in communities of concentrated poverty. Now just think about this. Christians, the stuff that we're getting behind, the stuff that we're putting out there and pushing. Now, I'm all for planting churches among the rich. I'm all for churches. If, you, if there's people there, we need gospel ministry there, right? One of my good friends, I just met up with him. He's a pastor in Silicon Valley, and I pray for him. And I'm like, man, you've got a tough ministry there among the wealthiest of the wealthy in our country. So all that to say, we, I hope you can say amen to the fact that we need churches everywhere. What I'm just simply saying is this, is I, my concern is that is that I think sometimes we can follow the world and actually neglect the same kinds of communities and the same kinds of people that the world neglects. And so I'm just kind of waving this banner saying, let's not continue to neglect those that society has already neglected. 
Now, additionally, every community has outcasts living within it. So there might be someone with chemical dependency, for example, someone who society might call the element or the problematic people, uh, uh, men and women who are trapped in cycles of violence, uh, they, in some ways willing participants in destructive lifestyles and at the same time unwilling victims as they do not know what they do according to Jesus as he looked at those who killed him while he hung on the cross. Jesus goes to those who are trapped in the jaws of death. This might mean those who sell their bodies this could mean those who are alcoholics. This could mean those sometimes who have disabilities. A recent study shows that families that have kids with autism, something like 95% of those families will never step into a church because of the challenges with a child with, with a disability, with autism. Um, it, it could mean uh, 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 the elderly. Sometimes I think the elderly, we, you know, someone stops, they're, they're no longer able to contribute to society or their family in the way that they used to, and they're just kind of put on a shelf, and we'll just kind of not have to think about our great-great-grandparents. And, and, and in all these ways, there's, there's various outcasts that are among us, those that are neglected by society. Let me give a quick testimony from our own church as to how we could accidentally neglect someone. We had a, a, one Sunday where there was a, two sets of visitors. There was a single mom from the projects who came with her kids. She sat in the back right corner. And we had a young couple that just moved to Baltimore City He's a lawyer, and she was a medical resident at a hospital. And they came and sat right down up front. And after the service, everybody's kind of engaging with each other. And I had four or five people in our church bring this young couple up to me and say, hey, have you, have you met them? You know, they told me about them and where they're from. They just moved here, uh, working as a lawyer, et cetera, et cetera. Which, by the way, it's kind of like a big deal in our church when somebody who comes and they have a job. Um, and, uh, but then after, after everything was over, I was like, hey, did anybody get the name of the single mom that was in the back? And the response was, yeah, you know, we saw her, I saw her, but I didn't actually get to talk to her afterward, or, or somewhere like who? And, and one member confessed as we were talking about this, they said, you know, I could tell you the names of the young couple. I could tell you where they went to college. I could tell you where they came from. But I didn't even get the name of the single mom with the kids. Now, my, my point is simply this. We don't want to show favoritism. But sometimes we just default toward favoritism based on familiarity. Now, are we allowed to show favoritism? I love the scripture passage we read this morning. It reminded me of uh, Cornelius. Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. He's the first Gentile that was, that was saved, that was a full, full Gentile that was converted. And just before Peter went to Cornelius, an angel came to Peter and said, Hey, Peter, eat meat. Go to Golden Corral. Eat as much meat as you can possibly eat. Why? It's because meat 
was a barrier between Jews and Gentiles. And so then Peter said, God has shown me not to call any person common, meaning nobody is just regular in God's eyes. And so Peter then went to Cornelius, and Cornelius became a Christian, and this all is summarized in Acts chapter 11, verse 12, as Peter says, the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. Making no distinction could literally be translated without discrimination. Why is it that we might unintentionally show favoritism in our mission? Let me give you quick three dilemmas. Number one, we have a missiological dilemma. Meaning if we are personally disconnected from those who don't know Christ, those who are the outcast and the broken, then we will just by nature miss them in our mission. And my concern is so often as we miss them and as we're disconnected from the broken and the hurting, churches then often resolve to handouts and they just give away things to make themselves feel better about the fact that they don't really have any mission to the broken of this world. Second issue, dilemma is this, our emotional dilemma. Meaning, if we are disconnected from the outcast, the outcast then feels like an outcast among us. One friend of mine did a PhD on why working class people don't attend church. And what, what he discovered, the main reason was because of shame. Because they have a broken family, they don't have, they're not put together, uh, uh, they're not working a job, they're struggling, and they don't feel like they could fit the polished vibe of a church. It's an emotional dilemma. And I think thirdly, we have a cultural dilemma. Meaning, if my cultural rules are not followed, then I could sort of subconsciously become Pharisaic. And it's hard for people to break in. So as a result, it's easy for me to kind of sit back and feel okay because I'm the righteous and they're the sinner. I've got it together, I'm following Jesus, and they don't. And so then I can easily tell myself, well, why worry about the guys in the projects? That's their issue. Why worry about the new housing complex folks? Why worry about, let's go out beyond the states, the Muslims in Saudi Arabia, uh, kids in the slums in Nairobi? What Jesus shows us as we look at the person of Christ, and he, as he goes to those who are estranged from society, Jesus shows us that everybody is worth crossing a culture, crossing a border, crossing a sea, so that all people might know Jesus. As I close, let me just ask this question. Why do the outcasts come to Jesus? Three reasons. Number one, the outcasts, the sinners, they come to Jesus for help, whereas the self-righteous are merely amazed by Jesus. Did you notice that in the text? The leper comes, the Pharisee comes, the tax collector comes, but the crowds are just amazed. Amazement is not enough. We must come to Jesus for help. Secondly, sinners come to Jesus and are forgiven. That's why they come. Whereas the self-righteous don't even ask for forgiveness. Thirdly, the sinners bring others to Jesus. Think of Levi. 
whereas the self-righteous judge those they're bringing. Why would I, why would you seek to find time in your week to go to the outcast, to go to the hurting, to go to the broken, to go to the kind of person who would say, I could never step foot in church. I, I would never think of coming, becoming a Christian or going to a religious gathering. Why would we go to them? Here's the answer. It's because we were one. It's because we were the outcast. We were the homeless. We were the broken. We were the sinner. You see, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician. I've come to those who are sick. I haven't come to call the, the, the righteous. I've come to call sinners, you and me, to repentance. I took a friend once to helping up mission, a homeless mission in our city. And for $2, I can get him in for the night and he'll get a hot bowl of soup, he'll get a shower, and he can spend the night there. So I was standing in this long line of homeless people. And I have my $2 and I'm standing next to my friend and I'm just waiting to go into this mission. And as I'm standing in this line of disheveled looking men and people that are dirty and people that are clearly on the streets, I had this moment of sinful pride. As people are walking by, as cars are driving by, and I'm thinking, somebody might know me. I'm standing there and, I, and I'm thinking, man, I hope people know that I'm the one that's helping somebody get into the mission. That I'm not in the line myself. Sinful pride. Charles Spurgeon said, when conviction comes on the sinner, a man thinks of himself as the chief of sinners. Charles, uh, John, John Bunyan wrote of his own conversion. He said, he, he, he said that he is the most unworthy of all people to receive the grace of God. Charles Spurgeon himself that, said that when the Spirit of God came to him, he believed himself to be far worse than the swearer and the drunk. Here's my point. To be a Christian is to realize that I am the unclean. To be a Christian is to realize I am the broken. I am the outcast. John Newton, who, who was certainly an outcast uh, spiritually, he, he was somebody who operated a slave ship for nine years, and then he was converted and wrote Amazing Grace. As John Newton was dying, he had dementia. And he said this, he said, my memory is nearly gone, but I rem remember two things. Number one, that I am a great sinner. And number two, that Christ is a great Savior. My point is this, when the Holy Spirit convicts me, convicts you of your sin, you realize, no, I am the one that's in the line. I am the one that needs help. And you pull your car over and you jump in that, to the front of the line. You realize the rags that you're wearing. And you run to Christ. And at the front of this line, you don't receive a bowl of soup. You receive salvation itself. We see him, church, who went outside of the camp for sinners like us. See him who went outside of the camp for the leper like us. See him who went outside of the camp for the lame like us. 
See him him who came to the sinner, a tax collector such as I, so that I might come in. Jesus, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, became the lowly and hung on the cross so that the lowly might come in. Come to the waters and drink this morning. Is Jesus your salvation? How great is the healing he brings. How marvelous is the forgiveness he offers. How wonderful is the acceptance of Christ uniting us with God. And so we praise him. Praise him as the one who came to you. He came to me. And as we praise him and as we fall in love with Christ, as we see his glory, may that drive us to go to them and to love them and to allow them to meet the Jesus who saves. Amen. Father, we thank you for Christ, his beauty, his magnitude, his humility, his lowliness. We thank you for the cross of Christ where he is most glorified God, I pray that we would gaze upon Jesus and as we behold his glory, that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And may we be people who live a life displaying the glory of Christ as we proclaim the good news of salvation to all people, to ourselves, to our spouses, our children, our parents, our friends, and to those we have not yet met. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.